biblical Jesus will never become dusty, tired, or worn out. He is as powerful today as he was in the first century, but it is easy for us to forget this. Jesus addressed a letter to the church of Sardis in the beginning of the New Testament book of Revelation. This church became a cemetery instead of a spiritual obstetrics and family practice ward. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, as he introduces us to Sardis, the Tombstone Church, by reviewing the stages that many businesses go through. As you listen, I pray that you will ask yourself what stage you are in spiritually and what stage your local church is in and what the Lord Jesus wants you to do about it. You know, a lot of you have been out there in the business world. A lot of you have been exposed to business training. If you think about the business world, you'll realize that there's different stages in the growth of a company. Some of you are going to graduate from university or some of you aren't even going to need to do that. You're going to have some very creative ideas and you're going to go out into that business world and you're going to give birth to a company. The birth of a life, the birth of a company, the birth of a church, all of the people rejoice in birth. It's an exciting time. It's a time of newness. It's a time of of real openness and joy in what's happening. And that's a very special time. A company's born. If you're founding a company, you'll go down to the bank and probably get some venture capital and you'll be able to buy some new machinery and you go out there and try to come up with ideas of how you're going to sell your product. Then there's another phase. Usually after birth, there's a, there's a powerful growth phase. When we bring a little baby home from the hospital, one of the major things is to get sure that the feeding is right. In fact, I just got a letter from a friend of mine that just had a brand new baby in Florida. And he said that our whole life is focused on one major thing, to get food into that little baby's mouth. And to make sure that the milk starts going down smoothly and they can grow. And it's amazing how that growth phase continues on through childhood. You get a little bit of a lull, you hit 12 or 13, and wham, suddenly there's all this growth again. And some of you that have teenagers are paying the bill for that growth. A business is like that. Usually a business is born with an idea, and then it begins to grow, and this is a phase in a company that's really exciting. The ideas are flowing, and people are talking, and there's all kinds of actions, and and all kinds of activities that are taking place as that company begins to grow. And boy, the power of that, and the love of that just grows and grows and grows. It's a really exciting period, the growth of a company. But the company begins to grow. It's kind of like, a, like looking at a curve. You have the birth. It begins to grow. But then it starts to hit a peak. And it gets up here at the peak. And that peak time is a time that's kind of the period of stabilization. And this is a phase where you've got a lot of growth. And so you have to really organize it, which is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. In fact, just to maintain the level of productivity that you have, you have to have some organization. And it's easy, though, during this stage of stabilization, it's very easy to begin to fall into a pit called institutionalism. No longer are you in the birth phase where a great entrepreneur gave birth to an idea. Now his name is chiseled on the front of the building. Instead of having ideas flowing about what can we do to sell this product and what can we do to make this company work, now people are asking, what can this company do for me? And so we find that a company right here can start to slide down and they can become institutionalized. 
And this is a phase where on the outside, like as you go into the corporate headquarters, things look really good. As you go in and are talking with people and it looks like things are really good. But in reality, the smell of death has started moving over this business. The smell of death has started happening. In fact, this is a phase where the executives are much more concerned about their perks on the golf course than they are about training the younger members of the, of the, of the company. And that's a time where it's easy for the company to begin to move towards death. And that's the deadly phase. And that happens in companies. Some of you can think through your careers and you've been part of a company that was born, it grew, it stabilized, then it became institutionalized, and then slowly but surely it died. And you lost your job and, and all of your hopes and dreams came crashing down. Well, the same thing that happens in an institution and a business can happen in the church. And that's the kind of the church that the Lord Jesus, through the Apostle John, wants to talk to us about in the book of Revelation. Turn to the last book of the Bible. We're looking at Revelation, the beginning of chapter 3. We're looking at the Lord Jesus' messages to the seven churches. And these seven churches describe for us the kind of churches that we're going to be exposed to all throughout the period that we might call the church age. I'm going to call the church of Sardis the Tombstone Church. Tombstone, Arizona is famous for what? It's not famous for life. It's not famous for vitality. It's famous for death. It's Tombstone, Arizona. The town of Sardis was a town that was famous for its multi-purpose, you might say, this great big cemetery that they had, not really multi-purpose, but it was a hundreds of thousands of people were buried about seven miles from the city of Sardis. In fact, people wanted to come from all over the ancient world to be buried in this ancient cemetery. As we read this letter, it says to the angel of the church of Sardis, as we hear the name Sardis, the first century readers would have thought of a city that had a great past, but no present. You see, the city of Sardis, for hundreds of years, was the leading city in all of Asia Minor. In fact, in 600 BC, it became the capital of the kingdom of Lydia, one of the great empires of the ancient world. This city was built on a 1,500-foot mountain, and it had sharp sides, 1,500-foot, almost vertical walls that went up to the Acropolis. And the people that originally founded Sardis built their city up on that mountain, and nobody could conquer it. And so the city began to prosper because it was run at a key point on a major highway coming from the ancient kingdom of Persia. And so when the kingdom of Lydia was founded about 600 years before Christ, it was this citadel that dominated everyone. And they said they could never, never be beaten. But the Persian king Cyrus came along and the Persian king Cyrus was gathered together at his army around this mighty Acropolis. And he looked and looked and looked and said, man, I can't get up there. I can't get up there. But one of his soldiers noticed that in one of the faces that was left totally undefended, one of the Lydians came down and they got a little bit of water, got a little bit of food from the lower city. And this soldier looked at this little path that was there. And so during the night, the Persian army went up there on that little path and they took the city because no watchman was placed on that part of the fortification. 
Strangely enough, the same thing happened about 200 years after that. In the time of Antiochus the Great, who was a Syrian, the same thing happened. The people living in Sardis gathered together up in their Acropolis. They gathered together in their defensive position and they said, nobody will ever, ever be able to get us. But sure enough, just like what happened 200 years earlier, a soldier noticed that there was a small path. In fact, this guy was the beginning of the rock climbers. And he climbed up, got inside the fortifications, opened their walls, and let everybody in. And so the city fell again. So all of ancient history, all the first century believers that heard the name of Sardis, they knew that this was a city that used to be great, But it was conquered twice because the people fell asleep on the walls and weren't watching. It was also a city that was known for its wool industry. And and they developed an art of dyeing this wool and making very beautiful clothing. And so this idea of staining garments was a very important concept in the book in in the city of Sardis. And so as the Lord Jesus begins to talk to this congregation that's gathered together in this city about 50 miles east of Ephesus, so you kind of have a picture where it is in Asia Minor, the Lord Jesus is going to pick up on this idea of here's a city that has a past but no future. It's like an institutionalized business who's glorying in what they used to do but it's no longer glorying in what's going to happen in the future. Look what he says. He says to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God. Jesus is the one, according to chapter 1, who holds the seven spirits of God. And we learned back in chapter 1 that the seven spirits of God that are going out before the throne of God represent the Holy Spirit. They represent the complete work of the Holy Spirit. The seven-fold spirit represents the perfect spirit. Jesus Christ said that he would baptize us with the Holy Spirit. That's what causes us to become the body of Christ. The early church was born at Pentecost when the early group of disciples, about 120 of them, gathered together in the upper room and the Holy Spirit powerfully came upon them. In chapter 4, when they're threatened with imprisonment and they're threatened with persecution, it said that the place where they were, while they were praying, it said that it was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they boldly declared the word of God. As you go through the book of Acts, what you discover is, is that this risen, exalted Christ has sent his spirit to live among his people. And that spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, moves out through that group and enables them to be bold in their witness. Bold in the relationship with Christ. Ephesians tell us that we need to daily be not drunk with wine, but controlled by the Holy Spirit. What I want you to realize is that Jesus is saying, I'm the one who holds the seven spirits of God. You know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying that I'm the one that bestows the ministry of the Holy Spirit upon a congregation of believers, upon us. The book of Ephesians says, be careful not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And what does the book of Ephesians tells us? We'll grieve the Holy Spirit if we stop responding to him. If we stop submitting ourselves to him, if we stop giving ourselves to him, when his little voice says, that's not a good area in your life, that's an area that doesn't carve you out to be an instrument for me, 
That's something that you're doing with your eyes or something you're doing with your hands or some place you're going with your feet. That's not a good place to go to glorify the Savior. Then we begin to grieve this quiet ministry of the Holy Spirit in our life. If we do that repeatedly enough and long enough, we can quench the Spirit and we become dead spiritually. What's the first thing that a church that's like Sardis needs to realize? And I'm not saying that we as a congregation are this church. I think there's characteristics of all of these different churches in our church and just about every church. But the serious question I ask you today, the serious question I ask myself today, am I controlled by the Holy Spirit? Am I alive in the Holy Spirit? I want you to ask yourself that question. Are you more alive in the Holy Spirit today than you were when you first came to know the Lord? Are you more empowered by him? Do you see yourself more used by him now than when you first came to know him or when you were going through the growth stage? Remember the growth stage of your spiritual life? As a pastor teacher, I realize it's a very tender phase. It's a very important phase. When a lot of you have come to know Christ as your Savior, you have a hunger to be in discipleship groups. You have a hunger to get into this book. You have a hunger to be taught the word of God. You have a hunger to obey it. You have a hunger to tell others about Christ. But you know, just like that business that I told you about that has the exciting birth, that has an exciting growth phase, maybe some of you are now looking at your life and you're kind of at the top of the curve. You've kind of leveled out. And I want to ask you about that. I want to ask you about that. What causes us to level out in our spiritual life? It's when we stop responding to the sevenfold spirit. It's when we stop responding to the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you're in that institutionalized phase, you find yourself just kind of existing. That can happen not just to an older one, but it can happen to a younger person who's young in age, but they become old spiritually. Because there's no longer the vitality of life. There's no longer that power. And that's what Jesus is going to talk to us about. And it's very interesting that Jesus now calls attention to the fact the one who's going to talk to us is the one who holds the sevenfold spirit. And some of you need to start to ask, and I need to ask, Holy Spirit, dear Lord Jesus, you're the one that bestows the Holy Spirit. I want you to fill me again. I want you to control me again. I want you to use me again. I want you to restore the joy of my salvation. I believe the Holy Spirit can give you power and vitality until he calls you home to be with himself. Until he calls you home to ultimately be with the Lord forever and ever. So a church that's institutionalized, that's falling into the pit of deadness, what's going to cause them to come alive again? It's going to become a renewal in their control by the Holy Spirit. The second thing this church needs is godly leadership. Look what else it says about Jesus. He's holding the seven spirits of God, but he's also holding the seven stars. The seven stars we learn from chapter 1 is the messengers of the seven churches. And we have learned that these messengers were given this book. They were given specifically the messages in the book of Revelation to these seven churches. And these angeloi, these angels, these messengers, the word angeloi in Greek means the messenger. These messengers took the parchment scrolls that the apostle John wrote. 
and he brought the scrolls. These messengers went across the Aegean Sea, went into Asia Minor, and they declared the truth of this prophetic message. As an American church, we're beginning to say, well, people don't want to listen to the word of God anymore. We need to water it down. We need to be more listener-friendly. We need to be careful. There's some sections of the Word of God that just really don't jive with a modern audience. We need to be sure that, that we are listener-friendly and, and we start evaluating the church just the way we would evaluate selling a product. And it's kind of like make an ad for the Super Bowl. I've got news for you. Don't, don't ever, don't ever become involved in a group that starts to discredit the power of the prophetic message of the Word of God. I think what you need to hear and what I need to hear is the power of God's truth. Amen? Now, it shouldn't be boring. And man, I need to work hard that I, that I know where you're at and I'm able to use illustrations that you can apply to your lives and it needs to be anointed with the power of the Spirit. But let's not ever think as a body of Christ that we're going to somehow grow the family of God by not communicating the truth of God's Word. What did the early church do? What did the church of Sardis do to wake up from their deadness? They had a leader come to them that opened up this letter. And I believe that as this messenger read this book, the anointing of the Spirit could come upon the believers in Sardis that were nearly dead spiritually, and they could come alive again. Some of you are dead spiritually. Sure, you've come to know Christ, but you've become non-listening. You're, you're just ineffective. You're just kind of insensitive. You're just going along. I find that can happen to me. I can have influences that come into my life and challenges that come into my life that just suck me away from listening to the voice of God. And I become cold spiritually. Anybody know what it's like to be cold spiritually? And you feel indifferent spiritually? And you begin to become lethargic spiritually? How do you get back to that? you got to get back listening to the Word of God. You need to ask yourself, as you're preparing for the gathered community of faith, you need to ask yourself and pray, Dear Lord Jesus, prepare my heart for what I'm going to hear from the Word of God. On a daily basis, you need to open up this book, and in your own personal time, you need to say, Lord, speak to me in this book. Convict me in this book. Really reveal your guidance to me in this book. And I challenge you, it's not very complicated. It's the old, simple way of doing it, but it's the truth. The church of Sardis was dead because they had forgotten the powerful movement of the Spirit. They were very organized. They looked really good. But men alive, if the real Holy Spirit ever broke forth, this institutionalized church probably would have fallen away in a final dead faint. We need to be alert to the power of the Holy Spirit in what he wants to do as we gather together. And second of all, that ministry of the Holy Spirit is rooted and connected in the powerful prophetic message of this written book. Now, what's the message that Jesus wants to reveal? Jesus begins to speak to this church that's nearly dead. He says this, I know your deeds. Jesus says, I know what's going on. The idea of I know your deeds, Jesus is saying, I know all that's going on in your life. I know what's happening. When he said that to the church of Ephesus, that was a good thing. He says, I know your deeds. He says, man, I know your commitment to truth. I know your commitment to doctrinal purity. And so you had all this stress on the letter to Ephesus that the Lord knew how good their deeds were. 
Some of the other churches, it says, I know your deeds. I know your faith. I know your patience. I know your endurance. I know your perseverance. So Jesus talked to the church about some things he notices in their church that really mean a great deal to him. Faith and love, endurance and perseverance. Notice what he says to this church. I know your deeds. And I would expect the next thing for him to say is I love your faith and I love your joy. I love your commitment. I love your patience. But he doesn't. Look what he says. He says, I know your deeds. As I look upon what you're doing in the church, you have a reputation for being alive. So what happens when you go to the Sardis church? They get together and put on a great show. When this church meets, it's really, really a good show. It looks like it's alive. You hear the words. People sing. People pray. People go through all the motions. They've got a reputation. People talk about how they sent missionaries in the past, and they talk about how the great revival they've had in the past, and they talk about all the, the times when people were being saved. As I read this text, I think of doing a prophetic congress in New Jersey many years ago. And during the week, I was in this gigantic church in northern New Jersey. I mean, it was built in the days when they built these very ornate, beautiful stained glass windows and everything. Just an incredible church. And as I was teaching, though, I was teaching just a handful. I could just take this little group here and this little group here. And that was the whole group in this great big cavernous cave. But they conducted the meeting. It was like we were at a Billy Graham crusade. The choir leader got up there and led the singing. And the announcement person in a bombastic voice gave the announcements. And I was invited to preach. But I really could have come down and we just could have had just a personal chat. There's hardly anybody there. What had happened? That church had become institutionalized. There was a day when they were filled with young people. There was a day when they were filled with young adults. There was a day when they were filled with strong middle-aged people. And there was a day when they had the, the steady stability of the elder saints in the family that were right there mixing it all up. But what happened? They died. It all became, well, you know, that's just not the way we used to do it. The Spirit of God caused some people to get some ideas and want to go out with some new ways to touch people's lives. But some of the older saints said, no, man, we've never done that. Change? What do you mean change? <laughs> the same thing can be said about a Bible church. You know, how many Bible church people did it take to make a change? What do you mean change? Those are marks that we're becoming institutionalized. It can happen to me. It can happen to you. And what happens is then you become a church and it's a great show. And that's what the Church of Sardis was doing, man. They were a show. Everything ran like clockwork. The only problem was the Lord says, you have a reputation. You put on a really big show, but you are dead. And boy, those words hit me like a thud. Jesus looked at our lives and said, you're running and going, you're blowing and going, you're doing all this stuff. You got a great reputation. You've done a lot of stuff for me in the past. But I look right now, what's going on in the present? And right now in the present, you're dead. I want you to pray for me. You know, there, it's really not many guys finish strong through the second part of life. As I look back over my life, there's not many of the saints that mentored me when I was young that are still going strong in their commitment to faith. How I praise God for men that are still proclaiming the same Jesus that I learned when I was a kid. But I can think of other leaders who fell away from that. And they just got into reputation. They just got into appearances. They just got into institutions. 
I want to inoculate us against institutionalism. I want us to inoculate us ourselves from just doing things because that's the way we do it. I want us to constantly be asking, what purpose does this serve in light of our biblical commitment? Is this contributing to the aliveness of Jesus' spirit in our midst? Are people being exposed to the truth of God's word and the, and the reality of Jesus through what we're doing? The church of Sardis had a great reputation, but they were dead. You know what they tell pastors about this kind of a church? Don't ever go there. Because young pastors call you up or middle-aged pastors call you up and they say, what do you think about this church? And you've gone on an itinerant ministry and you've gone to this kind of a church. It's all into reputation, all into tradition, all into institutionalism. You tell them, just forget it. Man, you'll never be able to go there. It'll be like raising the dead. But I want to challenge you that that's not the truth way that Jesus deals with people. You know the neat thing I love about Jesus? He doesn't quit on any of these churches. Jesus doesn't just chalk up and say, well, we lost that one. Jesus, as he moves through these churches, even this institutionalized church that has a reputation, but they're dead, Jesus keeps on coming, and look what he says. He says, I want you to wake up! I did that because some of you are snoozing away. No, not really. And I believe maybe if Jesus were here today in the flesh and we could see him visibly, he would look upon some of you and he'd say, wake up. Wake up. Say, wake up. I want to ask you, are you awake spiritually? Have you just been covered over with school? Just covered over with work? Just going through the routine? And Jesus comes to you and he wakes you up. He says, I want you to wake up to intimacy with me. I want you to wake up to closeness with me. I want you to wake up. We have a relationship here. Wake up. And I want you to strengthen what remains, what's about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. You've all seen it on a TV show. You know, the detective comes bombing in. There's the supposed murder victim right there lying on the floor. What's the very first thing that the detective does when he looks on the floor at the murder victim? What do they do? They feel their... Yeah, they feel their neck. They feel their wrist. What are they trying to find? If there's a pulse. That's what Jesus did. Jesus comes into this church, and I can just see Jesus saying, Wake up! And he puts his hand on the pulse. Does this church have any signs of spiritual life? And praise God. And the church of Sardis, though they were well in the level of moving towards death, Jesus is saying, there's still some life here. There's still some life here. Maybe in your own spiritual life. Jesus puts his hand on you and says, man, this one's really sick. This one's really close to copping out on it. It's really close to being gone, but there's still some life here. And so Jesus begins to give these encouragement. How do you revive an institutionalized, almost dead church? Look what Jesus says. He says, I want you to remember there for what you've received and heard. The very first thing that a church needs to do that's beginning to die spiritually, the same thing that an individual needs to do that's beginning to die spiritually, you need to remember what you have received and what you have heard. Now, what have you received? What have you heard? You have heard that Jesus, the Son of God, died in the cross of Calvary for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? You know what atonement is about? How do you make it right? Atonement means to cover. Atonement means to pay. Atonement means that the bill's been paid in full. 
Now, I want to ask you, how many prayers would need to be spoken? How many words would have to be recited? How much money would have to be given to be able to make it right for a young daughter in college that her daddy did what President Clinton did? You'd name the price. Some of you have been as people. Tell me, how much? A million dollars? That'll cover it, won't it? That takes care of what your father did, right? I'll tell you what. I'll work the rest of my life. I'll pay you. I'm going to cover the bill. See how ludicrous that is? You know what? For the wages of sin is... There's no payment to be made from a human standpoint. There's an incredible, righteous, holy God that looks down upon the whole situation and says, you will never be able to pay the bill. And the only way that's going to build and to be paid is for the fiery, powerful, deadly justice of God to come upon you. And there will be hellfire upon us forever and ever. That's what you used to hear in church. But you don't hear that much anymore. But that's the truth. Some of you that are on the edge of eternity, the edge of eternity, you're going to face a righteous, holy God. And that righteous, holy God will look at your life and he'll do just like Jesus says here. He says he'll know your deeds. He'll know everything about you. And you're going to look at him and, and like, I stand before Jesus. And Jesus looks at me and says, David, I know every single covetous thought you ever had. And I know every time you ministered in your pride. And I know every time that you weren't doing it for me, but you were doing it for yourself. I know the time when you stretched the truth and you spoke evangelistically, evangel elasticity. In fact, I know every single detail of your life. I know the anger that you had when you wanted to get somebody and there was an anger that you could have just murdered somebody. And Jesus just lays all of that on a screen before me. And there it is. And I look upon Jesus and say, Jesus, I'll tell you what. I will go to the heavenly church services from now for the next two million years. And I will memorize the whole Old Testament and the New Testament. I've got a lot of time to do it. I've got eternity to do it. And I will join whatever organization you you want me to join. I will pay the bill. You think that would work? And that's what a lot of American people, that's what a lot of people across the world are saying to God. Now, as we're in this throne room of heaven, the Son of God is standing right at the right, or sitting and reigning with God right at the right hand. And as Jesus holds up his hands towards me, the hands are nail-pierced. The hands have holes in them, and they'll have holes in them for all of eternity, the scars. And as I'm blubbering about it, I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to read the Bible, and I'm going to try to be a good person, and, and I'm going to try to just confess strongly enough. I'm going to try to pay my bill, and I'll say Jewish prayers, and Hindu's prayers, and Islamic prayers. I'll say whatever prayers you want me to say. Jesus holds up his hands. Have you ever thought of the audacity of standing in the presence of God, the Father Almighty, the one who with his Son and through the power of the Spirit from the beginning of time has planned that the only way that sin could be covered is for his Son to die, for his Son to bleed for us, his Son to die an agonizing death, and we have the audacity of saying, I'll pay the bill. But there's incredible, incredible good news. When you just say, Jesus, I can't pay my bill. I never could. I never can, and I never will. I just get down on my knees and I just say, Jesus, if you don't help me now, if you don't forgive me now, then I am totally lost. 
And Jesus reaches out his arms to you and he gathers you into his arms forever and ever and ever. And he says, you are forgiven. It's atoned for. It is covered. Amen? Amen. Do you understand the gospel? I know you've heard it from the time you were a kid, but our nation has forgotten. Christian leaders have forgotten the gospel. We're having nice buildings, nice churches, nice people. We've forgotten what the gospel's about. It's not important to make atonement for me and with me. It's not important to make things right on a horizontal level. The big thing is to make things right vertically. And only Jesus can do that. That's what the church of Sardis forgot. And that's what every institutionalized dead church forgets. They forget the wonder of the Holy Gospel. They forget the wonder and the joy of being convicted that you're a sinner and being totally broken in your sin and then have this incredible gift still splashing across your life and cleansing you and you become a new creation in Christ. You know what wakes up a dead church? The gospel. Remember what you received. What the Sardis church received in about 50 AD, the Apostle Paul came to Ephesus and preached the gospel. And that gospel went forth to the city of Sardis and people's lives were forgiven. People turned from immorality. People stopped being unfaithful. People turned away from their idols. They were born again. They had received this glorious person of Jesus, the good news, and they responded to it and they began to grow in this relationship with Christ. Don't ever forget what you've received. And if you're dead today and you find yourself cold spiritually, you need to go back, and I need to go back to what we've received, what we heard. The second thing we need to do, we need to not only do that, but we also need to obey it. We need to act upon it. We need to do it. We need to turn around. We need to repent. What it means to be to repent, it means that you, you come to the point in your life where you recognize that I've forgotten the gospel. I, I haven't been building my life on that. I've been building a lot of other things. And you recognize that and you get turned around and you focus on Jesus again. It means to just turn around the orientation of your life. Remember then what you have heard. Remember what you have seen. Remember what you've heard. Obey it and repent. What happens if you don't? If you don't, I will come as a thief and you will not know what time I will come to you. I believe that often the idea of the coming of the Lord is related to like the thief in the night. And I think there's some feeling of that. Like the church, there's going to be churches like Sardis when Jesus comes back for the church. And so it's the coming of Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night. That they're not expecting it. But you know in the Old Testament, like when Hosea spoke to the northern kingdom. God says that I'm going to come upon you like a lion. And I'm going to judge you because you haven't responded to me. You haven't, you haven't listened to my still small voice. And so Hosea speaks about a coming of Yahweh, which was specifically the judgment of the Assyrian invasion. And Jeremiah talks about the coming of Yahweh to his people, and it's the judgment of Babylon. And I believe Jesus, just like Yahweh in the Old Testament, the Son of God will speak about coming to his people. I think it happened in Sardis about 600 A.D. The church of Sardis listened a little bit. A lot of the churches throughout Asia listened a little bit to what John said. It woke them up. Maybe a lot longer than some of us will be awake as a church family. It woke them up for several hundred years. 
But by the 600s and moving in towards 1000 AD, the Byzantium Empire, the, the Eastern Empire, which had taken over the eastern part of the Roman Empire and was controlling this area, they were luxuriant in their beautiful clothes. They were living in beautiful palaces. They had beautiful mosaic floors. They had incredible artwork. I've been just amazed at the artwork of the Byzantium Empire. But you know what they lost? They lost the message I just told you about. They no longer believed that it was by faith alone through grace. And they had priests that wore fancy clothes and they had beautiful incense and they had beautiful buildings, but they lost the power of the gospel. They lost the transforming personal intimacy with Jesus. And they became just a political institution because the power of politics and the power of religion were joined as one. You had the Roman church on the western side, the eastern church on the eastern side, and both of the churches were moving into institutionalism and into titles. In fact, they even separated their executives, their religionists from the common people. They created a spiritual vacuum. They created a vacuum where the Arab tribes did not have morality taught to them. They did not have real spiritual values communicated to them. And a man, Mohammed, came along that dabbled a little bit in Judaism, dabbled a little bit in Christianity. But as he looked at Christianity, he saw that it was dead and insipient and lukewarm. And he generated an entirely new faith. And who could have ever dreamed that as the Islamic armies began to conquer this part of the world, who would have ever dreamed that it would harden over the years and become one of the strongest opponents to the gospel of Jesus Christ that's in all the world today? You say, what gave Islam? Why is Turkey today Islamic for the most part? Why is Syria Why is Iraq? Why is Iran? You see, and you as Americans hold, well, that's just the Islamic area. Do you know that that used to be the Bible area? Do you know that those whole areas, you have your Bible today, the most most insightful, the most careful biblical interpretation was done from Antioch and Syria for hundreds of years. Do you realize that this part of Turkey, Asia Minor, was the, it was like a launching pad. It was almost like an aircraft carrier that was sending out the gospel all over the world of that day. See, we just take it for granted. Islam's always been there. No, it hasn't. You say, well, what enabled Islam to get a foothold like it had? People like us. People like us that fell asleep. Lost the reality of the gospel. Stopped living the reality of the gospel. Stopped caring about Jesus. Stopped teaching their little children the reality of Jesus. And it produced just, an, just a cold, political, cultural religion that Satan could easily just blow over with the winds of Islam. And so there's a very powerful historical message. Jesus did come. Their lampstand was taken away. And it was passed farther west. And it's been passed farther west, but the same thing could happen. If Jesus tarries, right now I believe we're in a tremendous flux. The American church has been carrying the lamp of missions for the last hundred years or so. But as I travel in different parts of the world, in Latin America, as we go over to Eastern Europe, I meet with believers where you can almost sense the aliveness and the power of the Spirit. And as American believers, it's important for us to realize, man, we could be the church of Sardis. And the Son of God could suddenly come to us as a church. And suddenly, there's not a lot of young people here. Suddenly, there's not a lot of children here. Suddenly, there's not a lot of excitement about Jesus anymore. Suddenly, we hear a nice little sermonette on Sunday morning. 
but it doesn't really touch our heart with the reality of the word of God. What a warning to us. The church of Sardis already lived that. But you know what Jesus said, like he said in every church, there's always a little remnant. There's a little bit of life. And notice what he says. I want, yet it says there's a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, will be dressed in white, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says of the church. You say, Dave, why should I wake up to Jesus? Why should I wake up? Why should I? I'm in middle age, some of you, and, and I've been trying to follow this Jesus thing, but why shouldn't I just pour the rest of my life and just kind of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die? Why shouldn't I do that? Because your clothes are going to stink. Because all those nice clothes you get and all those nice things you get are all going to rot. But there's one precious Savior who will clothe you forever. Al Baca might have Alzheimer's today, but Alzheimer's is not going to be his clothing for eternity. Amen? He's going to shine like the stars. It's the only thing that keeps me going. Mary Jane might need you ladies to go visit her all this week in the hospital because her veins and her legs are all wearing out. And man, that blood just isn't circulating very well. And she might have arthritis where it's really tough for her to walk. But I got news for you. You're going to see Mary Jane dancing in glorious, victorious joy in heaven before the Son of God. Amen? And she's going to be dazzling in white, prettier than she ever was when she was a bride. That's the great promise that Jesus makes. You walk with him in white. You will be dazzling forever and ever. Don't focus on now. Focus on his promise. It's worth it. He'll dress you in white. That's what he's saying. He says, I'll never, you can count on the fact that I'll never blot your name out of the book of life. He's saying you should hang on to me because he's not going to ever blot your name out. Trust me. If you believe in me, if you, if you allow my spirit to, to help you to endure, which a true believer will, then your name certainly will not be absent from the book of life. It's the promise of heavenly glory. Just like we found in all the churches. You'll be given the white stone. You'll be given a new name. You're going to be given the morning star. Is it worth the cost to follow Jesus? You bet. You know what? Believers around the world are really understanding this. An Australian missionary... They were in his truck, kind of like a van, 10-year-old son, 6-year-old son, bringing the gospel, bringing the gospel into all the world. They were in India, in a part of India that's been very resistant to the word of God. The Hindu crowd, a mob gathered together, young thugs. They yelled out, you are calling us away from the monkey God. You are calling us away from the gods of our fathers. The monkey God rules. And they poured gasoline all over that vehicle and threw a match on it. And that Australian missionary went home to glory with his two young sons. Brothers and sisters, this is the real thing. This is not part of Texas culture. It's not something we watch on the eyewitness news as part of our Texas heritage. This is life, and it's life, and it's life, and it's worth giving your life for. That precious Australian missionary with his two boys today is clothed in white. It was worth the cost. It's the real thing. He had a stone given to him that gave instant access into the heavenly throne room.
the precious Son of God, just like he's, we're going to find in the book of Revelation, he says, blessed are those that die in the Lord from now on out, because they are faithful. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that we join a tremendous body of believers around the world. And I want you to feel that that Australian missionary and his two boys are somehow different from you. They're not. They're just exactly like you. And the same Holy Spirit that enabled them to boldly proclaim against the Hindu monkey God and against the thousands of Hindus' deity and to tell the good news that I shared together today, that same Holy Spirit can give you the news, can give you the same power. Brothers and sisters, it's time for us to ask ourselves, am I institutionalized? Am I dead? Have I lost that power of the gospel? Father, I just want to thank you so much that Jesus comes to me and says, David, wake up. Wake up. Sure, you've run with me for many years. You've proclaimed my word. But the race is not done yet. The race needs to continue. And dear Lord Jesus, I just want to pray that you would help all of us as we look at the church of Sardis. I pray that we will look into our own lives. Lord, help us to be quick to see the signs of institutionalism when instead of allowing the power of the Spirit to cause us to be excited about Jesus and in love with Jesus, we begin to turn away from him. We begin to not listen to him. And all Lord, I just want to pray that your precious Holy Spirit, that perfect Spirit, that sevenfold Spirit will not be quenched, that your Spirit might break some of the blocks that are keeping him from flowing freely in some of my brothers and sisters. I pray for some that are unbelievers that as I explain the gospel, the idea that Jesus alone can make atonement, can make a covering for their sin, we would pray that you'd help them to understand that and to bring that precious good news into their lives. Lord, I just realized that there's nothing I could say today that can rekindle a dead spiritual life. But Lord, the sevenfold spirit can go out today and he can rekindle what has deteriorated and what has become dull and lifeless and insensitive. Oh Lord, I just would pray that you would do that. So Lord, as we continue to listen to these messages that you gave to the churches, I pray that we wouldn't lock it up into what you said to them so many hundreds of years ago. But I would ask you that we would allow you to speak to us today. In Jesus' holy name we pray. 